Take a seat, and if you have a Bible with you, I want you to open up to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 18 to 22. For some of I've entitled Harvest Time Reflection. Here's what it says. This is Jeremiah speaking. He says, My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is their king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven images, with their foreign idols? Harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not yet saved. For the brokenness of my daughter, of my people, I am broken. I mourn, I dismay, dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? What's your favorite season? Now, for some of you, it's winter, skiing down the slopes or uh, snowmobiling down the trails. Even on a frosty, cold day, uh, you think winter's great even to be outside because for no other reason, there's no mosquitoes. And uh, on a cold day, who doesn't like to warm up in front of a flaming fire drinking hot chocolate? For others, though, the best time is spring. Snow's melting, flowers are blooming, birds are returning. The days are getting longer and getting warmer, and everything is new and fresh. But what about summer? Biking and hiking, fishing and water skiing? I mean, don't you just have more energy when there's the sun is still out at 9 o'clock at night? But for me, the best season, without a doubt, is fall. Sure, the days are getting shorter, but you have that perfect balance between the warm days and the cool nights. The air is crisp, and the colors are beautiful. Trees are blooming, are bursting out in yellows and reds and orange and brown. Autumn's the time to enjoy the bounty of your garden and to watch the farmers bring their harvest in from the fields. Many churches have harvest festivals as an annual reminder of the, the produce of the earth as a gift from God. But at the same time, I have to say this, though I enjoy fall, it always makes me reflective, wistful, and a little bit sad. Though I seldom attend the state fair, I'm always sad to see it end on the Labor Day weekend. And while I enjoy watching the leaves turn color, I know that they'll be falling soon and snow and long winter is coming afterwards. Well, since our get-together here in Sconewood marks our unofficial end of winter, I decided I wanted to preach from a text that speaks about this season, the harvest season. is a time of celebration, and so I could have easily done a text from Psalms talking about God's goodness and giving us the bounty of the earth. But instead, I decided to choose a text from this passage where people are bemoaning the fact that the harvest has passed, the summer's ended, and yet they're not saved. There's two things I want to do in this text this morning. First of all, I want to take some time to interpret the text so we understand what the people were complaining about in Jeremiah's day. And then I want to think about our, this doleful verse and how it applies to our nation, our family and friends, and even for some, our own lives. So why don't we pray and get in the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy that you'd help us to see what's in there for us today in your word and bless us as a result of it. For we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the times Jesus' disciples were with him and he asked them this question. He says, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. And they replied, some said, well, John the Baptist. And some others said, Elijah. Still others said, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, 
You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Have you ever wondered why people thought Jesus might be Jeremiah come back from the dead? I mean, I understand Elijah. Elijah did miracles. Jesus did miracles. But why Jeremiah? Well, maybe it was because Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says this, In his days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Well, the first thing that we see in this text is the prophet's anguish, and that's in verse 18. Jeremiah said this, My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. The reason Jeremiah's sorrow was so exceeding was because he had a knowledge of what was coming on his nation that he loved. God had determined that the Babylonians would be used by him to chastise his people for their sins, and death and destruction was going to come upon them. And though Jeremiah knew all this, he continued to preach and to proclaim the message to the people. He said that they needed to submit to the king of Babylon and take his yoke upon them. And, uh, of course, the time that he was saying these things, the people were listening to other people coming along, giving him a different message. Now, Jeremiah had been telling the leaders of Judah that the Babylonians would come, but the false prophets had been saying, no, there's peace, peace, when Jeremiah said, there is no peace. Who do you think the leaders and the people listened to? Jeremiah, with his harsh message of words of warning, or the false prophets with their soothing words of reassurance? I'll tell you something, folks. Most people would rather have a comforting lie than a hard truth. Tell people what they want to hear in church, and they will fill in by the droves. Tell them what they need to hear in church, and many of the pews will sit empty. Jeremiah complained earlier. He said, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will they do in the end? Jeremiah 5, 30 to 31. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. In their sins, Judah had run on for a long time, but Jeremiah knew that God was soon to cut them down. And that thought not only sickened his stomach, but it broke his heart. Brings us to our second thing we see in the text, though. The exiles cry, and this is in verse 19. By the time Jeremiah had written these words, the first group of exiles had already been taken away to Babylon. The book of Daniel opens with these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. You remember, this was the time that Daniel and some of his friends were taken captive along with the children of the nobles of the area. Well, Jeremiah said that the Babylonians would come. The false prophet said, no, he won't come. Jeremiah was right. They were wrong. But despite their failed forecasts, the false prophets kept giving more ear-tickling messages. Wearing a wooden yoke as a symbol of captivity, Jeremiah told them that they would be in captivity for 70 years. But the true message was contradicted by a man named Hananiah, a false prophet, who stood up and proclaimed this. He said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I am going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I am also going to bring back to this place the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now Jeremiah was speaking for God. Hananiah was speaking for himself, claiming to be speaking from God, which means he was either lying or self-deceived. 
But Jeremiah later was sent back to that same prophet and told him that he would die that very year because he prophesied falsely in the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. Now, no doubt, some of the exiles had heard these smooth prophecies coming from men like Hananiah, and they probably thought to themselves, you know, so those articles of the temple that were taken, you know, but the temple itself didn't fall. God's not going to let the city fall, and we're going to be home soon, right? But Jeremiah puts it this way, Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is her king not within her? I mean, they were saying, the Lord dwells in Zion. I mean, the God who made the mighty will make the mightier still. You know, it's interesting. The idea of patriotism is despised by those who are on the political left. You're more likely to see an American flag at a Trump rally than at a convention for a Democratic Party. And you're more likely to hear God bless America from Republicans than Democrats. But do you hear from political leaders of either party that our biggest problem is sin and what we need to do is repent, whether we're Democrats or Republicans? We talk all we want about one nation under God, but if there's no intention of turning from our sins and back to him, it's just empty slogans. That brings us to our third point, though, God's question. This is found in verses 19b. God asks the question, he says, Why have you, they provoked me with their graven images and with their foreign idols? The people of Zion were saying, Surely God will rescue us, because he dwells in Zion and we're his people. But God was saying to them, Really? Am I your God? Are you my people? If so, what do you, how do you explain all these idols that you have? I mean, it's like a man who tells his wife, I'm your devoted husband, and yet he's constantly running off with his secretary on a business trip. God does dwell in Israel, in Zion, but they are not his people. Using imagery of, of a vineyard, God says this to him earlier in Jeremiah 5, 13 to, or 10 to 13. He says this, Go up now uh, to her vineyard, rose, and destroy but do not execute a complete destruction. Strip away your branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of, the, of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, declares the Lord. They've lied about the Lord and said, Oh, not he. Misfortune will not come upon us, and we will not see sword or, or famine. The prophets are as wind, and the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. And the amazing thing is, is as the people are plunging deeper into sin, they still maintain their religious practices. I mean, warning Timothy about what lies ahead in the last days, Paul said this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Listen to the description. See if this sounds like the fall lineup for a TV network. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of what's good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But listen to this. Yet holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. And he says, avoid such men. I mean, the people in Jeremiah's day were still religious. They still held to a, a form of godliness. They would sacrifice their children in the morning to Moloch and then later on go and worship the Lord in the evening. And they saw no disconnect in this. At one point, God told the prophet, he said, go to the temple and wait for the people as they're going in. He says, stand by the gate of the temple, or the Lord's house, and proclaim there these words. Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter into the, these gates to worship the Lord. Thus the Lord of hosts says this, the God of Israel, amend your ways and deeds, and, let the, uh, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, and if you do not oppress the alien and the orphan and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place and in this land that I gave your fathers forever. Behold, you're trusting in deceptive words. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, offer up sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods which you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, that we might do these abominations? Has this house, which has been caused by, called by my name, become a robber's den in your sight? Behold, I've seen it, says the Lord. And yet, where did they think the problem lie? Was it with themselves and their sins? No, they thought it was God's fault that he hadn't delivered them. Look what it says in verse 20. And this is the verse I want to focus on for the rest of the sermon. We see the people's complaint. Verse 20, look what it says. Harvest has passed, summer has ended, and we're not yet saved. By this time, the people saw that the words of Jeremiah would indeed come true. The Babylonians would invade, and it didn't appear that Egypt was going to rescue them like they thought. Unable to stop the invasion and unwilling to repent of their sins, they mournfully bemoaned the fact that their predicament was as it was. And somehow they thought God had failed them to deliver them, so the harvest had passed, the summer has ended, and they were not yet saved. Now I have to say, I believe that those words are some of the most haunting words in all the scripture. And while we're not facing an imminent invasion from a foreign nation, those words could be applied to our nation as well our families, our friends, and sadly for some individuals here. Let's apply these verses to each of those groups. Harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and Americans are not saved. The other day I went shopping at Walmart. I was struck by the number of empty shelves. I mean, if there's any store that's going to be packed to the top, it would be Walmart. Reminds me of the films I used to see when I was a kid about the Soviet Union in the 70s where they would stand in line for bread for hours. Now, I don't think the supply line problem is going away anytime soon. What we're seeing is not just a breakdown in the global markets, but we're also seeing, more importantly, a breakdown in our moral order. This is a revolution, a moral revolution that's underway. Isaiah said, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, we're not only seeing moral perversion, we're seeing a moral inversion so that what used to be considered shameful and kept hidden is now celebrated and paraded for all to see. I mean, think of the phrase, a gay pride celebration. If you ever see this on television, you'll see some things from a distance, but they never actually show what's on the floats. Do you know why? Because they would be taken off the air, the news if they showed it. And you got parents bringing their kids to see just incredible displays of perversion. I mean, after cataloging their sins, God complained of the people in Jeremiah's day. He said this, he said, were they ashamed of all the abominations that they had done? No, they were not ashamed at all. They didn't even blush. They don't know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. And at that time, I will punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Rather than restrain evil as our government is supposed to do, it's the number one promoter, championing things like sexual perversion, encouraging covetousness and theft. Think of the rioting we've seen in the last couple of years and the looting. We practice human sacrifice through abortion, and then we harvest the baby parts and sell them. We mutilate the bodies of boys and girls, and we call it gender reassignment surgery. 
And what of the increasing violence we're experiencing? Which was the last mass shooting? I wrote this on Thursday, so there's probably been one since that. But the last one I saw was in Memphis, where a man killed five people and injured another three. It was a 19-year-old young man who filmed it on Facebook, or live-streamed it so everyone could watch. The young man, when he was arrested, just smiled at the cameras as he was taken into custody. And it's not like you need a gun to do the mass killing. Two brothers in Canada just stabbed to death 10 people and wounded more than a dozen. No doubt what we need to do is have some kind of high-capacity knife ban to stop it. And there's no end in the sight for the violence. Did you hear the news story just uh, Thursday, I believe it was? A man beheaded a woman on the street in California. Cut her head off with a sword right in front of witnesses. The article that I read said this. Residents in San Carlos neighborhood said they are trying to understand what could have led to Thursday's grisly killing. I can tell them what led to Thursday's grisly killing. The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and we're not yet saved. Well, let's just change one word in that verse. The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and they are not yet saved. And here I'm thinking about family members and friends and coworkers. Earlier this week, I went with my wife when she went to visit her mother, who lives in an assisted living place. I had a couple hours to burn. Well, Suzanne visited with her mom, so I decided to visit some old friends who lived nearby. Three brothers that I worked with 30 years ago. Uh, they all live on the same street, and uh, it's potluck when I go there, whether it will be anyone or not home, because I always just show up on a ride. But my friend was sitting there, uh, was out in the, in the yard working on his garden with his wife. And pretty soon one of the other brothers came by. So the four of us, the two wives and the two brothers, talked. It was fun to sit on the deck. It was a pleasant day. We are joking and reminiscing about working together at the restaurant some 30 years ago. Several times in the conversation I heard people, either me or someone else, say, can you believe it's been 30 years? Man, time passes quickly. I mean, we used to be kids, but now our kids are having kids. Thinning hair, graying beards. One of the brothers already had one knee replacement, and he's had another one scheduled. I was happy to see him and enjoyed visiting with him. But when I drove away, I was sad. You see, Years ago, I bought all three of the brothers' Bibles. And two of the brothers, and their mom, and their sister, and the wife of one of the brothers, were with me in a Bible study at their house for about a year and a half or so. But now, even though two of the brothers profess faith in Christ, one of them attended church with Chris for a number of years, but now, 30 years later, there doesn't seem to be any change. The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and they're not yet saved. Growing up, my best friend in the neighborhood was a boy who lived behind us. His name was Mark. I was friends with him from the time I was about five years of age to about uh, 13. At that time, we had a falling out, and our family moved away. I've never seen him since. His parents, however, came to my wedding seven years later, and uh, after that, to my parents', uh, um, my parents uh, 50th wedding anniversary. And over the last several years, I've thought to myself, you know, I should stop in and see them. And I knew they still lived in the same house because one time when I drove by it, they had the garage door open and his 1936 Ford Coupe was still in the driveway. So just the other day, I drove by there. And uh, as I did, I thought, I'm going to stop. But then I noticed they had three cars in the driveway and they were all rusty. 
And I thought, at that era, their age, they probably wouldn't be driving rusty cars. I wonder if they're even living there anymore. Maybe they moved to their cabin or even into a nursing home by now. So I went and Googled a name, Joanne Edla McCann. And a picture came up along with these words. Joanne Edla McCann passed away peacefully at her home September 5th, 2021, at 80 years of age, preceded in death by her husband, Terry, and her son, Todd. There was no mention of her faith in her obituary. The harvest had passed, the summer ended, and evidently she was not saved. Now, I'm going to make some application here. I think for those of us who are Christians, we're always looking for opportunities to witness to our family members, but I think sometimes we look for the perfect opportunity that never comes. Not only us, but all of our non-Christian family members and friends are getting older. The harvest is passing, the summer is ending, and they're not yet saved. All of us need to be a little more urgent in getting the gospel out. But there's one more slight change we could make in this verse to make it even more sobering in our thoughts. The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and I'm not yet saved. Now, like those in Jeremiah's day, for some of you here, you've heard the word of God with its warnings of the danger of sin and the reality of judgment day and the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on unrepentant sinners. You've heard those things preached by me over the years. As a matter of fact, for some of you, you've heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons from me. And yet, the reality is that the harvest has passed, the summer's ended, and you're not yet saved. Charles Spurgeon, addressing some in his congregation back in the 1800s, urged them to think and to say to themselves this, Furthermore, it's not only that I'm not saved, but I have not been saved for a long time. He said, let me put it, have you put it in your own language, in, their, in your own mouths. He said this, time flies. How quickly it's gone. I was a young man a very little while ago, but now I'm getting into middle age, getting a little bald, gray hairs are coming here and there. Why, dear me, here are grandchildren. It seems only yesterday I was married. Yes, harvests have passed, vintage have been gathered, and I'm not yet saved. 20 years ago, I sat listening to the same preacher. I was not saved then. I remembered how it touched my conscience, but all those years have gone. I'm still not saved. Worse yet, habits harden, and they become more entrenched in our character. You suppose it's easier to give up smoking after two years or after 70 years? The more we sin, the more we get used to sinning. Repeated choices become habits, habits lifestyle, and lifestyle forms our character, and our character is going to determine our destiny. Because Paul reminds us in Romans 2, 6-8, that God will render to each person according to his deeds. To the one who by perseverance in doing good pursues glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, live for themselves, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there's wrath and indignation. Paul warns the Corinthians this. He said, Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, some of you who are young, and I want to address particularly those who are young, I'd like you to listen. 
Some of you who are young are thinking to yourself, you know what, I'll turn to Christ when I get older. That's assuming you get older. Did you know that 120 people die every minute in this world? Are they all over 80? I did a funeral for a woman who was 103, but I've also done a funeral for a girl who was five and a boy who was 14. I did my dad's funeral at the end of September. I went back to the same church 28 days later and did my mom's funeral. There was a man sitting in the audience that day as I warned people that your life could end at any point. I did, attended his funeral about a month later. For him, the harvest had passed, the summer was ended, and he was not yet saved. I did another funeral for a mother a couple of years later. I did a funeral for her son. I did a funeral for a son, and a few years after that, I did a funeral for his mother. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know how you're going to die. It might be when you're old after a long struggle with cancer, but it might come young in an instant. I worked with a girl on a Friday at a restaurant. She was supposed to be there in the morning at 7 o'clock. I said, where's Jenny? She said, she's not coming in. I said, why not? She died last night of a brain aneurysm. She was 16 years old. I read about a young man whose life came to an end at the Jets-Patriot football game. Before the game started, they had a radio-controlled uh, flying airplane going around in the stadium. One of them was shaped like a lawnmower. It swooped down too far and hit him, killing the young man. Do you suppose he got up that morning and thought to himself, today's my last day on earth, I'm going to meet my end by a flying lawnmower. Now you're thinking to yourself, Doug, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to die from a flying lawnmower. Neither was he, until he did. But even if you don't, or do make it to old age, do you think you're more likely to say yes to Christ after years and years of saying no? Hebrews 3.15 says, Today if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time of, behold, now is the day of salvation. Joe Thies was my barber. I used to witness to Joe when I got the opportunity. One time we were talking, it was in the fall like this. He said, you know, one of my friends said to me, he said, you know, Joe, I probably have 10 hunting seasons left and that's it. He said, I thought, that's true. Well, that was about 15 years ago. I would guess his hunting seasons are done. Your last summer will come soon. Your last harvest will be over. After that time, you have to go to your eternal home, either heaven or hell, and experience either endless joy or endless misery. Now, Jeremiah ends this by asking the question, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Now, balm is a type of healing agent. It was produced in Gilead. So Jeremiah's question here is a rhetorical question. Since there's healing balm available for spiritual sickness, why haven't these people availed themselves of it? Now listen carefully. Because, you know, when I do, uh, when I have people tell me that they go to a funeral, I always ask them the same question. I said, did they give the gospel at the funeral? And they'll say, oh yeah, they gave the gospel. I said, okay, did they explain how the cross can make a sinner right with God? Well, no. Then they didn't get the gospel, did they? I try to put the gospel in almost every sermon I do. I want to make it clear, so in case maybe you haven't understood it yet, you understand it now. God has provided a healing balm, as it were, for our spiritual disease called sin that we all share in. He sent his son into this world to live a life of perfect obedience, and then his son laid down that life as a sacrifice for sins on the cross. 
As Jesus hung on the cross, God took all the sins of his people that would ever, they would ever commit. He laid them on Jesus and he punished Jesus in our stead. That's what we meant when we sang the song that said, till on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God he satisfied. And then Jesus was raised from the dead. And as a result of us trusting in him, God removes all of our sins and imputes, credits Christ's perfect record of righteousness to our account so that he can look at us as if we had lived Jesus' life, not our own. So what I'm telling you is this, the salvation is not a reward that we achieve by our efforts, but rather a gift that we receive by faith. And if you've never trusted in Christ alone for your forgiveness of sins, I'm inviting you to do that today. If you are not healed of your sin malady, there can only be one reason. It's because you haven't gone to Christ for healing. Come to Christ. Don't let this summer end and this harvest pass unsaved. Come to Christ. Come today. Because how many years have we been coming out here? Almost the entire time we've been in church, right? 18, 20? There's people that I've looked out in the past, people who are in our church, they're not here anymore because they've entered eternity. This may be the last harvest and summer you experience. Don't leave this world without Christ. Trust in Jesus for your salvation. Let's pray. Our Father and God, these, were, these are sad, heavy words because the people who heard these words, almost all of them perished. Almost none of them repented. We know that from what it says later on in Jeremiah. But we have something they don't have. We still are alive. We still have a chance. The harvest is passing, Lord. The summer is ending. And there's some here who don't know you. And there's certainly some who are going to be listening over the internet who don't know you. But your son came to save sinners and to seek out and save that which is lost. Father, I pray that you would do that even today for some who are here who don't know you. That you'd work in their heart and give them eternal life. That they might find the joy that comes from knowing you. So bless them, bless us, bless those who will listen. For we ask in Christ's name.